0: We also want to thank those of you who are watching live. And uh, we're, uh, we thank you for coming through. And um, we are going to change in the near future to not live stream, but to pre-record it and then upload it. Um, so that might happen in the near future. For you know, we don't, It's just something we probably need to talk about, only because we really value gathering together as a church and not cater to the mindset that you can sit at home on a couch and fellowship. You know what I mean? So that's that's not what the scriptures call us to do. And so not that if y'all right now are, are watching this live, <laughs> you, know, you know, just I love you, I really do. Um, but um, yeah, I think in our country, we just become too comfortable. And, and I think, um, especially with the environment and the culture of like, you need to wear a mask, you need to do this. and. And uh, thankfully, God has given us favor here in PA to not be under those restrictions. Um, But gathering together really is something that the church does, regardless of what uh, kings and governors say. We are called to come together. Um, And so it's been difficult. It's been hard. But the Lord has been gracious to our church in the midst of it. Uh, I heard a testimony of a brother, a fellow church planner. Uh, almost in tears, he was. They were a month away from shutting down. Uh, they they only had a month of finances left, and then he shared how God miraculously gave two offerings that month for them to continue. You know what I mean? And so, but that's the environment. That's what's going on out there with churches. There's a lot of decisions being made, a lot of pressures that pastors are facing. And so, please pray for the church, pray for leaders, pray for pastors that are definitely. Uh, going through things in our lives um, in this season. So with that being said, we are going to go to John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. And uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. We've been going through the Gospel of John, starting from verse 1, chapter 1. And now we're all the way to 18. We're almost done. And uh, so hopefully you're more well acquainted with this gospel, and I'll pray for the Lord's direction on what we're going to do next, Um, but we're definitely going to go through another book together, so I look forward to that with you. Starting in verse 1 from the English Standard Version, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kindred, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him and also knew the place for Jesus, often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into his sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, help me and help us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. That includes hearing. That includes preaching. That includes speaking. That includes standing. That includes sitting down. That includes drinking the water we're drinking. That includes waking up this morning. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, I ask God that you would help us today. Help me not to be about men. Help me to be about you. Help me to worship you today, God. We value the corporate body coming together. And we thank you that it is essential, God. And we, and we thank you for this, that the preaching of the word has happened here. God, continue to be faithful to us. Continue to use me and Wayne and others that come and preach to do it for your glory and not for the glory of man. And so, God, let our listening and our hearing be for your glory and not for ourselves. And so, God, help us today. We need you to understand your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So like we do every week, we cover what we went through last week. And verses 20 to 26 of John chapter 17 is what we actually covered. And in these verses, we read the prayer Jesus had made for those who will believe through the word that was given to his disciples. He was praying for us and he began to pray first for our unity. In verse 21 of John 17, he says that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me then we pointed out two things that we actually saw in this section first he prayed that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you and second that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me and so in the first we looked into what it meant to be one And we looked at the New Testament and how so many passages that were written were mainly talking about being of one mind. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Philippians 2.2 spoke of being of the same mind. 1 Peter 3.8 spoke of having unity of mind. And we also saw the mind of Christ being spoken in 1 Corinthians 2.16, which believers are to have. And so the early church understood the importance of guarding unity within the fellowship of the saints, which I believe had to do with what Jesus was praying in this section of Scripture. And this is why the writers of the New Testament warned about those who tried to divide the church. We even have in the Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 6, where one of the things that the Lord hates is one who sows discord among brothers. So to be of one mind meant to be of one mind. (laughs) That's what it means. One body in Christ. In the second part of what Jesus prayed for here, we saw the gospel work that comes from our being one. Jesus prayed that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so unity in the local church is fundamental to our witness. And our unity with the father and the son is a non-negotiable in our efforts of sharing the gospel. And that is why in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1-4, Paul charged the church at Ephesus to be not just about having one mind, he said to be eager to have one mind, to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And so then in the second main point, we saw that Jesus prayed for the believer's honor, and we use the word honor just to be careful about the word glory. Because a lot of us did, you know, have had the experiences of coming from churches with the word of faith doctrine that overemphasize your role in Christ at the expense of like Christ being down here and you being up here. Being preoccupied with identity with Christ rather than Christ, which happens. And so we focus on the word glory, seeing it as the word honor. And the focus here was that Jesus was honored before the Father and we would also be honored with that same honor. John 17, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. And so what Jesus gave us was the same reception that he would receive from the Father. Let that sink in. But God Listen, man, that was so encouraging. It was an encouraging reminder to us that we would be honored with him. And this is what he was praying for in verse 22. And lastly, Jesus prayed for believers to be with him in verses 24 to 26. Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And so this prayer prayed by Jesus would come to pass and we would be with him because he prayed this prayer and the prayers of Christ will be answered. Which gives us confidence of attaining oneness in our fellowship and the confidence of being with Christ where he is. Our passage today takes place after this prayer that he prayed and he prays another prayer. But it would not be full of joy It's not a jubilant prayer. It's a prayer of pressing and distress. Jesus will pray a prayer of sorrow and praying in his sorrow. But the conclusion he came to in the midst of being pressed full of sorrow is that the will of God will be fulfilled. In fact, it will show us the very reason for him coming into the world. So that's what we're gonna look into today. Three points real quickly. The first, the setting, we're gonna see what's going on right before Judas comes into the picture, the setting in verses one through three. Then we're gonna see the arrest in verses four through nine, the arrest in verses four through nine, and then we see the retaliation in verses 10 through 11. So the setting, verses one and three, the arrest, verses four through nine, the retaliation in verses 10 through 11. So we see from verse 1 that Jesus went out with his disciples to a garden. He went across the brook Kidron, which was a stream in a ravine that would normally be dry in the dry season, but it will be full of water in the seasonal rains, in the, season, in, in the seasons where there was a lot of rain. And it reminded me of Puerto Rico when I lived there for two years. We actually have one of those uh, back in uh, my, my uncle Pedro's house. Uh, yes, I have an uncle named Pedro. I know that's typical for Hispanics. <laughs> You know what I mean? That's typical, no doubt. I have one of those. Um, <laughs> but uh, he had land, and he had actually two mountains. And in between the mountains, he had this stream where we sw- swam as kids in there. Reminded me of that, and that's kind of like what you're seeing here in this ravine. You're seeing like almost like uh, these hills or mountains, and then in between, you see the stream right there, which was actually uh, east of the temple in Jerusalem and there it says in verse one was a garden which was the garden of gethsemane that's what the garden was here john's not uh, pointing it out by name here but that's what it was when you look at the other gospels it's called the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke they have similar recordings it tells us that that garden was gethsemane and we know this because of the other accounts of in I'm talking about the same event. And it would be good for us to look into the other accounts. That's what I want to do, to know exactly what happened. There's a lot that happened in between him leaving that prayer that he prayed and then Judas coming into the picture. All three of the Synoptic Gospels actually record this. If you want to notate this, Matthew 26 verses 30 to 46 is Matthew's account. Mark 14, 26 to 42 is Mark's account. And then Luke has it in chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. It's there. Matthew's account has the most details uh, compared to the other recordings in what happened here in Gethsemane. And what I want to do is uh, include the details of the other accounts so that we can know what is happening in our text. One of the first things that we should look at is that they actually sang a hymn before they went to the garden. This is what they did right after the prayer of Jesus. We see this in Matthew 26, 30 and Mark 14, 26. Usually a hymn was sung after eating a meal. And if you remember, John chapter 13, they ate that meal before, you know, John chapter 17 happened. Hymns were sung right after a Passover meal. And what was sung, according to custom, actually, was the song, specifically Psalm 115 all the way to Psalm 118. That was customary after the Passover meal to sing the songs. Jesus and his disciples went to Gethsemane where he told his disciples to sit there and pray. And then he believed the disciples except Peter, James, and John. And both Matthew and Mark record that Jesus was greatly troubled, greatly distressed, and full of sorrow. Matthew 26, 38, Mark 14, 34. He also told them to remain there and watch with them. He went to the garden to pray, and while he was praying, he would pray only with his three disciples there. In Luke twenty-two forty, 40, Jesus told Peter, James, and John to pray that they would not enter into temptation. So it was clear that this prayer, unlike the prayer he just prayed in John 17, would be a prayer of pressing and of sorrow. We know this because of what Jesus prayed for in Matthew 26, 39, where he says, my father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Mark 14, 35 to 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. Luke 22, 41 42. He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You get the picture? This was a pressing and intense prayer for Jesus because he was about to be arrested and what he would do here saints is face the cup of the wrath of God. The cup of the wrath of God was actually spoken in the Old Testament. Isaiah spoke of the cup as the cup of his wrath, which to those who have drank it would have been drunk, would have drunk the dregs it says of the bow and caused them to stagger from drinking it. Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah spoke of it as the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. And for us, the good thing about this, there's good news in this, we don't drink from that cup. Psalm one sixteen thirteen 13 says, we'll drink of the cup of salvation. But for Jesus, it was the cup of the wrath and fury of God. This is what caused Jesus much sorrow and trouble, and he prayed, as any man would, for this cup to pass. He was asking for another way, another cup to be given, but Jesus concluded that the cup, even with great sorrow and distress, had to be taken in order that the will of the Father would be done which no man could have done because we have all fallen short and are sinful ourselves. We would have gladly taken another cup and bounced from the garden. There's no way I'm going to face the wrath of God. But I believe because Jesus was without sin and that he was God, this allowed him to overcome the option that any man with sin would have taken. Isaiah, when he saw God's holiness, he felt his sinfulness, But Jesus saw the wrath of God, and he didn't point out his sin because he didn't have any before God. So what he did instead was submit to the mission that the Father had called him to, which was to die for the sins of his people, even while feeling the dread of the wrath of the cup of God given to him by the Father. We see after that Jesus went to his disciples, he found them sleeping after he told them to keep watch. He told them, could you not watch with me one hour? watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation he said the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak we misquoted that John many times see that you know i used to say that getting up for church and be like man the flesh is woo you know like the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak today you know but listen for christ to go through what he went through, and his disciples just doing what he told them not to do. Can you imagine the the discouragement Christ had? The second time, Jesus went away and prayed again for the cup to pass. And again, he found the disciples sleeping. Jesus went for a third time and prayed again for the cup to pass. Listen, this was so intense that Jesus, as he faced the cup of the wrath of God, this was so intense that he actually had an angel minister to him afterwards an angel of heaven would appear to him and it says in Luke 22, 43 would strengthen him. It was that bad. It was that intense. It was that weighty. It was so intense that Luke records in chapter 22, verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So listen, unlike the prayer he had before, this prayer was full of sorrow, distress, and pain. But he nonetheless pursued the task given to him by his father. Jesus would address his disciples in Matthew 26, 45-46. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer. Is at hand. This is all of what happened in our text. Now let's go into verse 2. Mm. Mm. Verse 2 says, now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse 3, so Judas having procured, meaning taking hold of a band of soldiers, And some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus was well aware of his hour, saints. This is what he was preparing his disciples for. But it didn't mean that for Jesus it would be easy. He felt great sorrow, and it was real. He was troubled and greatly distressed, and it was real. All because of the cup that was before him, and now it was time to enter into his suffering. Judas not only showed the band of soldiers and officers and the chief priests where Jesus was, the scripture said that Judas procured them, meaning that he took hold of them and he showed them where Jesus was. Judas made sure to take hold of the officers so that they would find Jesus to arrest him. Remember John 13, 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, into Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. This man was possessed. Judas was possessed. He could not help. He he was literally hell-bent. Literally hell-bent on betraying Christ. Jesus told him, what are you going to do? Do it quickly. And now we see that Judas' betraying Jesus led to his arrest, and that's our second point, the arrest of Christ, in verses 4 through 9. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? So notice that John the writer pointed out that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. So this was no surprise. Jesus knew that his his hour had come. If we go back to John 2.19, he knew that he would die and that he would be raised. John 6.64, he knew that Judas was a thief. From the very beginning, he knew he would betray him. John 10, 18, he knew that he was laying down his life and that it would never be taken from him. He laid it down. It wasn't being taken from him. He laid that down. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. The question Jesus asked is followed by the writer pointing out, whom do you seek? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. This is crazy. Because Jesus here is using the same words that were used to reveal who God was in the Old Testament. I am he. Ego emi. This was used by Christ, which was the same language used when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 8.12, and again Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father had taught me. I got more. John 10, 7. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 20, uh, John 14 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Man, I got one more. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This is who Jesus is. He's the I am of the Old Testament. He's the God who revealed himself to Moses. He's the God who revealed himself to Joshua. This is who he is. He was God. This statement was made here in our text, and it did something to those who came to arrest him. Verse 6. When Jesus said this to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. As we used to say back in the day, Jesus represented. He repped. He repped here. He, he flexed a little bit here. He said ego emi. And they drew back, meaning that they backed off. And not only that, they fell to the ground. What echoed in my head when I was reading this was John 10:18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. They fell to the ground because of the word Jesus spoke about himself. He follows what happened here with asking them again in verse 7. So he asked them again. Whom do you seek? Mm. He probably was looking down at them like, Whom do you seek? He probably looked up and said, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 8, I told you that I am he. Mm. So if you seek me, this is important, let these men go. So why did, G, why, why did this happen in our text? Why did Jesus do this to them? Read verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he has spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. I have lost not one. So in the prayer, Jesus prayed in John 17, 12. Remember, he said, while I was with them, talking about his disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled not one has been lost Jesus is fulfilling what he has spoken in his prayer for his disciples he would not lose one to death but they would all be alive so that they would see him in the resurrection as he already spoke they are trying to arrest Jesus but he showed them who he really was and who was in charge Listen, man, this is a good reminder that God is sovereign. (laughs) He he brought to pass that his disciples not only would not be killed, but would see him in his resurrection. He promised them, you will see me again. A little while, you will see me no longer, John 16, 16. And again, a little while, you will see me again. No one's going to do nothing to you. I got you. I know they're coming for me. I know they're going to kill me. And it looks like they might kill you, but I got you. I am he. They dropped to the floor. He represented, and he reminded them who he was. He told his disciples, you will see me. This would be done and could not have been prevented, all because the word Jesus spoke that it would be fulfilled. There was a note on this where someone pointed out the psychological impact that this had on those who were there to arrest him. A commentary on the Holy Scriptures of John said this, there is no question of a prostration of all. The foremost ones were confounded at finding Jesus so suddenly not sleeping, but waking, presenting himself so composedly. Even before this, they were paralyzed, as it were, with all of him. Now, when they would fain seize him, a horror of all overpowers them and recalling they fall one upon another all because Jesus said I am he they were shown who really was in charge Jesus held all things together in his incarnation he didn't cease to be god and he made sure that the disciples would be kept he would lose none this is an example, saints, of God's intervention when it comes to our preservation. Jesus, in revealing himself as the I am, violated the plans and motives of men. And he did this in order to fulfill what he has spoken. The disciples were going to live and see the son in his resurrection. And there was no stopping it. It is the same with us, saints. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up, not maybe, I, I don't know about this, I will raise him up on the last day. He will do it. If he doesn't, he'd be a liar. He didn't say I might raise some. Y'all acting up right now, so I'm going to raise you today. You're done. He's going to raise us up. Jesus said this. He said this very clearly, and there's nothing that can stop him from giving us eternal life. And there is nothing that can take our eternal life from us. I was reminded by John 17 11, I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you Holy Father keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one once Jesus prayed for them to be kept they would be kept and he made sure of this in our text by causing those who attempted to arrest them to fall to the ground at his feet Jesus didn't need Peter's help Peter always thought he could help Jesus don't laugh, because that's what some of y'all, too. <laughs> Myra, Lynette, no, i <laughs> <laughs> Nick was like, Evie, too. Um, <laughs> I'm joking with y'all, but we definitely, we definitely act like we can help God. That's what Peter thought here. He allowed his passion before his trust to take place. Listen, he was a passionate. He loved Jesus. He really did. He said, Lord, I, you know I love you. But he, he allowed in this text, in the retaliation, which is our last point in verses 10 through 11, Peter allowed his passion to go before his trust. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Here we see again Peter's misplaced passion where he should have trusted Christ instead of taking matters into his own hands. Remember Mark chapter eight, where Peter rebuked Jesus for telling them that he had to suffer. You're rebuking Christ. You got issues. Mark 8, 31 through 33. And he began to teach them the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, he says, and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter in this situation was not thinking of the things of God. Namely, that God sent his only son to be a lamb, to be the lamb of God that will take away our sins. Peter was not setting his mind on the things of God. And again, we see this here in our text. Peter allowed what he wanted for Jesus and for himself to get in the way of what God wanted. Peter must have already forgotten who was in charge. I mean, you kidding me? You saw dudes falling to their faces. You forgot already because you allowed your passion to go ahead of your trust. Peter forgot John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I'll lay it down. So Jesus knew all that would happen to him. It was no surprise. And even in this situation, Jesus, when saying, I am he, those who came to arrest him fell back down to the ground, a display of who actually is in control and something that Peter forgot. After being taught and shown the sovereignty of God, Peter found himself again failing to trust, which He would do again in his denial, knowing Jesus, of knowing Jesus. He would do this actually three times. He would deny the one that he said he loved, that he protected. And it's really no different with us. Because we ourselves continue to be taught biblically, yet we act like God isn't sovereign and in control. We still find ourselves falling short of trusting him. We let our passions and our desires to get ahead of what he clearly said in his Word. That really is a tension for us, isn't it? We know what's true, but we allow our passions to get ahead of us in what's true. Truth calls you to obedience, and passion just feels pleasurable. There really is no difference, saints. Peter wanted to control a situation that was already under control. Jesus made sure to teach this and even display it throughout his earthly ministry. And listen, this is a revelation for us. The revelation being that God doesn't need your help. Newsflash. God doesn't need you and he doesn't need your help. Don't act like you can help God. We should take heed from the mistake Peter made in our text. And Jesus here, because of the cup that he was to drink from, he was troubled, distressed and sorrowful. He swept drops of blood because of the agonizing truth of facing the wrath of God. Three times he wrestled with taking the cup, but he had always concluded that the will of the Father would be done. And he even needed an angel to come and strengthen him because of the weight and loathsome reality of the cup he was to drink from. Peter was not sending his mind on the will of God and that God was providing a lamb to be slaughtered even for his sin. But this is what this cup was about. In verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into a sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? The answer was yes. That's what you came to do. His mission was to drink of the cup that the father was giving him. This is important because there's a teaching out there that's going against the doctrine of penal substitution. They call what, you know, the idea of the father crushing his son is divine child abuse. But penal substitution is biblical and essential for your view on the cross. If you compromise penal substitution, you soften the weight that was put on Jesus on the cross, and you're serving another God. You're fashioning another God. No, how can a father, and you know what people are doing, they, you know, this is what people are doing. They're almost like bringing God down to our level in order to understand that he was good. How can God be good in crushing his only son? I don't have time to go into Christus victor. I'm not against the doctrine, but a lot of progressives flock to a Christus victor view and kind of huddled up on that. And God is a nice God. He's victorious. That's cool. No, God is a righteous judge. He had to punish sin. And we couldn't pay for that sin. So he sends, and listen, this is the gospel. He sends his only son, Jesus Christ, to take the penalty of sin that we could not take on our own because we were sinful. We deserved the punishment. But one who didn't deserve it will take upon it. That's why it's called the vicarious atonement of Christ where he vicariously came into our place took upon the wrath of God, absorbed it, satisfied it, and now he walks on our behalf as our righteousness and our peace and our God. That's why we can be honored like he was honored, accepted like he was accepted. Penal substitution according to karm.org, is a theological viewpoint within Christianity that maintains Jesus was legally punished in the place of sinners. That is, he took the place of the sinner. It is penal in that Christ suffered the penalty of the law. Taking the penalty of the law, it was substitutionary in that Christ took our place on the cross when he bore our sins. People have taught that it would be divine child abuse for God to punish the sin, but people who teach this deny that the cup was given to Christ. We just read it in our text. The Father gave him this cup that he was in distress about and sorrowful. In the Old Testament, Isaiah fifty three ten. yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Why? The next section of the verse, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was the plan the whole time, that this cup of the wrath of God will be drunk by the Son of God, <sighs> so that we, can Psalm one sixteen thirteen 13, could lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I thank the Lord that he did what he did. Was it hard? Yes. Was it sinful? Yes. Not on the father's part, Acts 4. He gave his son, but we sinned, man sinned, in crucifying the son of God. In God's vantage point, he was providing a lamb so that we can be saved and delivered from our sin. That's what he was doing here in the text. It was the plan of God the whole time that the cup of the wrath of God would be given to his son so that when he died, he will make atonement for our sin and that many sons and daughters would come to him. That's why it says he shall see his offspring, those of us who were saved, and he shall prolong the days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then really, the prosperity of the son is that many sons and daughters of glory go and follow after him. And that's why today, saints, uh, we should be encouraged. We don't have to drink of this cup. We have one who drank it for us. The scriptures teach that if you're not a Christian here today, this does not apply to you. John three thirty six says that the wrath of God abides in you. And it's because you have not come to trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. You know, I, what I tell people is, you know, people think I got to get ready. That's far from the truth. None of us can be ready. Matter of fact, we're deserving of his wrath. We're ready for wrath. (laughs) But when you call upon the name of the Lord in faith and in trust, listen, after exhausting all your resources in the world, boyfriends, girlfriends, jobs, careers, whatever the case is, I know you've tried it all. I know you're not happy deep down inside. And you know what the scriptures say, that you're suppressing the truth of God with your unrighteousness. You know there's a God. What I'm pleading with you today is to stop fighting against that. Surrender to the Lord. Trust in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. I've done it, you know, where I was at a loss. I was young, destroying my life. I didn't even seek God. I was invited to church. I never went to church. I just, I don't know what happened. I just went, and the gospel was given, and I found myself drawn to the front bursting out into tears, and crying out for my God, who I did not know. And ever since then, it's never been the same. I love the Lord Jesus more now than ever. I, 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 I love him. And you know what? He charges us to love him with all our hearts, and I fail with that. The Christian life isn't about perfection or having things together. The Christian life doesn't promise you free, uh, freedom from suffering and sickness. But the scriptures do promise that we will have a joy no matter what the cost of the suffering in our lives. And I can tell you, man, that the Lord Jesus Christ has been good. If that's you here today, I plead with you. Repent of your sin. Turn and trust the Lord Jesus and he will save you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Help us today. We can be very self-righteous preferential, self-indulged, worried about things that you have in control. Lord, again, through the scriptures, take us to that garden again to know the weight, the magnitude of the wrath of God that you were facing. How it caused you great sorrow, you sweat drops of blood, you were in agony but you did it you went forward betrayed by Judas left alone by your disciples taking upon the cross in agony crying out has the father forsaken the loneliness the intensity of what you did and you died but Lord we thank you that you resurrected on the third day we thank you that you right now intercede and stand before the father as our righteousness and our peace and our hope and in your prayer you promise for us to be with you again to be with you and so lord today as we take of the cup and the bread This is a cup in representation of what you have done. And we thankfully can drink of a cup in remembrance and not in tremble and not in trouble and not in distress. We gladly take of the cup that you have given us to drink in celebration of what has given us salvation. So Lord, help us today. In Jesus' name.